Matthew chapter 18 on page 985. I'd encourage you to have that open before you. We've just been singing about how it's only by the grace of God that we can uh, approach him and come into his presence. It, It seems to me that it's only by God's grace that we'll ever hear him speak to us. And, and given that that's what we want in these next few minutes, let's, let's pray briefly, asking that in his grace God would speak to us just now. Let's pray. Father God, there's so much in this world that, that keeps us from hearing you. There's our own busyness and our frantic minds. There's the fear of what it is that you might say to us and how that might impact on us. Lord, there are countless reasons this morning why why we might just leave this place not having met with you or heard you. Lord, we pray that in your grace you would break through that. That you would speak to us just now in your word. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm always a bit wary and nervous of married couples who tell me that they never fight. Uh, We have been together for six years, they say, or 12 years, and there's never been a crossword between us. Now, it's not that I don't hope that that is true. I, I genuinely would love it for all of our married couples if we could put our hands in our hearts and say that that was true. The reason I'm a little bit nervous is that I I wonder if in the case of this particular couple, they're they're not being entirely honest about their relationship and and how they really relate to one another. If if I'm nervous about a married couple telling me that they never fight, I'd I'd be equally nervous, maybe even more so, about a church that tells me they never fight. You know, we just meet together, we, we love God and we love one another and, and nothing bad ever happens. Nobody falls out, there's nobody in our place who's not getting on. Folks, the witness of God's word and the witness of church history and my personal experience and probably yours all combine together to tell us that that's not a very realistic way to think of our church life. There's conflict in the church. Jesus expected it. He took it for granted. Otherwise he would have left out the teaching that we've just read together, the second half of Matthew chapter 18. It doesn't make sense if there's no conflict in the community of God. So what we're going to think about this morning here is thinking about how to resolve conflict and then how to forgive one another. I soon realized when I looked at the passage that that I have for this morning that it would be very hard to do justice to all of it uh, in, in the short time that I have here. So as a result, I've chosen to mention the first part just in passing, really, flag a couple of things up, and then spend most of my time in the second part. In verses 15 to 20, Jesus offers a course in conflict resolution. 
And if you look carefully, you'll see that he's, he's really, there are a few things that are important to Jesus here. The first thing, we're not to ignore problems between us. If your brother sins against you, go to him. So we're not, we're not allowed to just sit there and drift with bad blood between us. Then a lot of what Jesus teaches here is about acting with integrity. So Jesus outlines a process of how we might go about at reaching out to someone with whom we're having conflict. But underlying it all, and this is crucial, underlying it all is a goal of restoration. We go to our brother or our sister, not, not, to, not to hit them, not to show them where they're wrong, but instead to see if this relationship that's broken might be restored. Now, I had a chance to preach on the subject of church discipline a few weeks ago in an evening service when we were in the final chapter of Galatians. So I'm not going to go into to any more detail about this part of the passage this morning. One thing I will say. If we refuse to deal with conflict in our community, it will not be because we love each other too much. If we refuse to go and have these difficult kinds of conversations with one another, that will be because we love one another too little. We don't value our relationships with one another enough to get involved in in this awkward and demanding kind of work. We don't care enough. We don't care enough about our relationships or about the glory of God. Friends, this kind of thing that Jesus talks about here, this going to somebody, this, this working hard at our relationships, that only happens in a community where we care about the glory of God and care about each other. My prayer is that we would be just that kind of community. That we would care enough about God's glory in this place, about the state of each other's souls and our relationships, that we'd be willing to do this kind of thing. Conflict resolution. I'm going to leave it there. Because we're going to spend the majority of our time just now thinking about forgiveness. Since it's inevitable that there will be sin and conflict in our community, then we must learn how to forgive. It's absolutely crucial. So Peter gets the ball rolling with this question in verse 21. He comes to Jesus and he says, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother when he sins against me? Shall I do it seven times? If you back up from that question a bit, it seems quite a weird question. Um, at least at least initially at first glance. But actually, as you reflect on it, it's, it's a very common one. And it's one that we ask ourselves, maybe not in exactly those terms, but each one of us wants to know the answer to this kind of a question. We want to know how much we have to do to pass ourselves as a forgiving person. How far do we have to go when can we say, I've tried my bit, I've done my best, and when's it okay to say, enough's enough, I'm not taking it anymore? That's a very common way of thinking 
whenever people hurt us. In, in the days when, when Jesus was teaching and Peter was asking his question, some of the religious teachers of the day said you had to forgive a person three times when they sinned against you. So Peter's doing really well here. He's doubled and added one and offered seven forgivenesses. So there's something actually quite genuine about Peter's question, even if it seems a bit strange at first. Although there's something natural and almost genuine about the question, I want to think with you for a second about what lies behind Peter's question and and our thinking on the subject of forgiveness. Although Peter's asking how often he should forgive, Peter's really asking for permission not to forgive at all. He's asking permission to keep score. You took my seat in church today. That's okay. I forgive you. You did it again this week. Oh, that's okay. I forgive you. You talked about me behind my back. Listen, forget about it. It's, it's no problem. These things happen. I forgive you. You sinned against me three more times. Four, five, six. It's okay. You know, these things happen. I'm, I'm okay with that. I forgive you. you. You spoke about me behind my back again. That's all right. I forgive you. We're all human. You took my seat in church again. Bang! That was number eight. I'm all out of forgiveness. You've had that coming to you a long time. Folks, that's sometimes how we work with forgiveness. Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother who sins against me? Up to seven times. Jesus understands this question, this this desire that we have to appear to be forgiving people while all the time avoiding the costly price of real forgiveness. So look at his reply. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. And you'll notice in the footnotes that it says, it it possibly means seven times 70, so that's 490. So what's Jesus saying here? Is he he simply extending the period of scorekeeping? You can't hit them on the eighth time. You have to wait until the 78th time or the 491st time. Then you can really hit them. Is that what he's saying? Of course not. Jesus is totally undermining Peter's notion about keeping score. He says, Peter, there is no magic number. We're not keeping scores. There's no quota on forgiveness. We forgive endlessly. That's what we do. Now that's a pretty powerful piece of teaching and a huge challenge that Jesus presents us with. Forgiving, that's what we do. And as he so often does, Jesus follows a a piece of pretty straight teaching with a story to to allow us to dwell on this a little bit longer. And 
And we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at Jesus' story. One day, the founding, uh, founding managing director of a large and a thriving bank calls the board into the boardroom. The auditors have just been in. They have discovered that one of the bank's traders has been caught with his hand in the till. He's been embezzling systematically from the bank for years now. And by now, he owes a, an astronomical debt to the bank. When Jesus tells the story, he, he chooses the largest number available to him in the culture and he pluralizes it it's a bit like saying this guy owes billions or sorry zillions even even beyond billions i was trying to think of a a modern day equivalent and if if you go back a few years in your memories uh, do you remember nick leeson bearings bank that guy took an awful lot of money out of his bank. He, he lost them an absolute fortune. So here we have a huge debt, the, the largest debt imaginable, a debt that there's no prospect of this guy ever paying back. And now it's the day of reckoning that the trader is brought in before the managing director, the, the guy who'd hired him, the guy who'd given him a good job and a great salary, the one who trusted him. And before the members of the board, the MD passes judgment. He says, sell everything he owes. Throw him into prison and anyone else who was complicit with him in this, in this fraud. Case closed. Take him away. Next item of business. And there's no surprise here. It's standard policy. Exactly what you would expect to happen in a case like this. But then something happens to the convicted traitor. He throws himself on his knees before the boss and he says, I I know I'm guilty. I I know what I owe. Please show me mercy. I'll pay back what I can. Give me some grace. Now Jesus' listeners aren't stupid. They know every bit as well as as we do that the boss is never going to, to respond to that plea. Every economy that's ever existed has operated on the same irrefutable law. You owe, you pay. That's how it works. So the guys in the boardroom that day are looking at their their colleague on his knees before the boss. And they just think it's so embarrassing. Like this guy's hit a new low here today. He's been, been creaming it off from the boss for years. He's been caught. He can't pay. And now he wants mercy? Are you kidding? Even if this guy had a thousand years, he could never repay his debt. Catch yourself on. Get up off your knees and take it like a man. So the onlookers here, they're surprised by the traitor's embarrassing cry for mercy. But they're even more surprised when they see the boss's response. As the bosses look at the the guy, as the boss looks on the guy, at the guy on his knees before him, as he thinks of his wife and his children, something happens in his heart. And Jesus says that he took pity. For reasons that we can't quite understand, The boss goes over to this crook on the ground in front of him, 
raises him to his feet and says, All right. I forgive you. Not only do I forgive you, that debt that you owe me, it's wiped out. Don't even try paying it back. You don't need to. It's gone. It's more grace than this guy asked for. Much more than he could possibly have imagined. Folks, it's crucial that we understand what what Jesus is saying about God in this story. When the boss here forgives the debt, it doesn't simply disappear. Real losses have occurred. Billions have been wiped off the balance sheet. Who absorbs the loss? It's the boss. Whenever he forgives the embellisher, It's no casual thing. This forgiveness comes with a huge price. And the only person who knows that price is the boss, the one who's paid it. In a world where the the law of economics says you owe and you pay, the boss comes up with something new. He says you owe and I'll pay. I'll take the hit. All the cost will fall on me. If we step out of that story for just a second, it's pretty clear who the reference points in Jesus' story are. The boss in the story, of course, is God. And the other character, the embezzler, represents you and me. Jesus says we have accumulated a huge debt before God. It's an unpayable debt. We stand holy, uh, we stand entirely condemned before God. But the good news of the gospel is that, that God steps in, that He pays our debt for us. You owe, He says, but I'll pay. But again, another thing we learn in Jesus', in Jesus story is that that forgiveness didn't come cheap. Our forgiveness cost God the very thing that was dearest to him. The life of his son. Folks, that's why the cross always has done and always will do stand at the center of Christian faith. It shows us the length that God goes to to forgive the debt that we owe him. It costs God everything. And he willingly pays it. That's a wonderful message. But it's not the end point of this story today. God wants us to forgive in the light of his great forgiveness. God has willingly paid us, uh, paid the great debt that each one of us owes him. He wants us to forgive the the much smaller debts that accumulate between us. That's why Jesus tells the story. He's answering Peter's question. How often do I have to forgive the guys around me? Let's come back for a moment to our story. 
The embezzler's debt has just been dealt with, and Jesus then adds a, a second act to the story. As soon as the, you know, sooner as the embezzler been been forgiven the debt, uh, shown out of the boardroom, he's walking down the corridor and he spots a fellow employee, a guy who owes him twenty quid, money that he had lent him the week before to go and buy his lunch. Now the fellow employee hasn't got any cash. He's on the, the minimum wage tier of the bank's pay structure. Wait till the end of the month, he says. I'll get you the money then. He asks for grace. He asks for time. If you look carefully, you'll notice he uses exactly the same words that the embezzler had used in the boardroom. Jesus skillfully tells the story. It says there, be patient with me and I will pay you back. What's happening here in the corridor is, is in many ways very, very similar to what happens in the boardroom. The only real difference is, is the size of the debt. This debt is small. It's manageable. The gap between these two guys is nothing compared to the gap between the, the trader and the, the managing director. So we're, we're watching carefully now What's going to happen? How's this traitor going to respond? Incredibly, this former embezzler, this this cheat who's been forgiven everything, he thinks to himself, I'm not going to make the same mistake that the boss did there in the boardroom. I'm not going to be taken advantage of. I'm going to make him pay. He says to his colleague who's who's stammering and asking for forgiveness, he says, don't bore me with your excuses. Do you think I'm some kind of a sucker that you're going to take advantage of me? He grabs the guy by the throat, he chokes him and has him thrown in prison. It's a very emotive story, isn't it? We can't help but react to this traitor. We're outraged. Outraged that a guy who's been forgiven so much should be so unwilling to forgive a smaller debt of his neighbor. Friends, we're outraged. But our outrage condemns us. Here we are. God's forgiven us the billions. And we choke each other and we imprison each other for loose change. That's what it looks like to God when his people will not forgive one another. Jesus uses this story like a mirror. He holds it up before us and he shows us a God's eye view of our unforgiveness. He says, this is what it looks like to me. Friends, do we see now where there's no room for unforgiveness in the church of Jesus Christ? 
How can there be room for unforgiveness in the community of the forgiven? It's an outrage. There's one last part to Jesus' story, and to tell the truth, I'd be happier if it wasn't there and we could wrap things up. But it's here in God's Word, and I'm not going to leave it out. Word about the embezzler, it spreads through the entire bank, what he's just been seen to do in that corridor. The managing director gets to hear of it, and he calls him back for a second appearance in the boardroom. You didn't get it. You didn't get it at all, did you? He says to the the traitor in front of him, you thought that now that I'd forgiven you, now that you were in with me, that it's okay for you to continue in your old and unforgiving ways? You're mistaken. Badly mistaken. You clearly haven't recognized what it cost me to forgive you. You were shown forgiveness but wouldn't pass it on to your neighbor. But here's the thing. You can't receive my forgiveness and deny it to others. Those two go hand in hand. So the managing director turns to the guards. He says, take him away. Throw him in prison. Leave him there until he pays his unpayable debt. This, says Jesus, is how my Father in heaven will treat each one of you unless you forgive your brother from the heart. Friends, we're, we're finished here for this morning and I'm sure, as I did, you found this a, a very sobering passage. I hope we'll be willing to take God's word to heart here at Kirkpatrick Memorial. We've learned in our passage to to leave aside our naivete. To recognize that conflict will happen in the church. To learn how to deal with it and not shirk that responsibility. We've been reminded that we will sin against one another. And hurt one another. And that we must learn to forgive. Folks, the only way we can possibly do that is by remembering what has been forgiven us. The Christian views the world through through the cross of Jesus Christ. The place where our uh, unforgivable debt was forgiven. Folks, it seems to me that there's just a very real aspect to all of this. If we have even the tiniest bit of appreciation of what God has forgiven us, We will forgive one another seven times or 77 times or 490 times. We will forgive. But if we don't have an appreciation of what's been forgiven us, we won't. We will live our lives unable to forgive others and ourselves unforgiven. Let's pray.
Father God, often when we gather here on a Sunday, we mistakenly imagine that we're stepping from the real world into some sort of rarefied spiritual atmosphere. Lord, today's been one of those moments where your word just shakes us and wakes us and and shows us the real world as you see it. Lord, we're not perfect people. We're not good people who always do each other good. We fail each other. We hurt each other. And we let each other down. Help us to name that. And to be honest about it. And help us then, having received the wonderful forgiveness that you give us in Jesus. Help us to pour forgiveness over all around us. All who hurt us or or harm us. Lord, teach us to forgive. Help us to pass on what you have given so wonderfully and kindly to us. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.